Father, uh, we come before you, and we want to give you thanks, first of all, for providing us a guidebook, uh, owner's manual, for what is happening here on the earth and what our condition is and what our future state will be. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would bring this insight and make it personal to us, that we wouldn't certainly know it just as something like in a book, but we would know it and live it on the inside. We would ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us in our endeavors to serve you, and and we pray that you would uh, really pour out your grace when we fail, as you promise in your word. We also give you thanks for your mercy that you don't judge us according to our sins. But help us to communicate this to others as well, Lord, that you are a gracious and loving God. So teach us more through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've given you guys the timeline for uh, the end times coming up, beginning with 70 AD, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Then the next thing that's supposed to happen is at the beginning of the tribulation, somewhere a few years before, months before, we don't know, there's going to be the rapture of the church and there's going to be the Gog and Magog invasion. Then you're going to have the peace treaty signed as according to the book of Daniel where the Antichrist comes along and he makes a treaty with the people. And in that treaty, we know from the timeline given in Scripture, is going to be seven years, three and a half years into that timeline. The Antichrist is going to stand in the temple that is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And by the way, they're ready to rebuild it. They have the plans. They have everything set to go. When that happens, the the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple, declare himself as God, put up his image in there, When that takes place, we know you can almost count the days until Jesus Christ comes back. And this is all given to us because Scripture says God does nothing without first telling his prophets. So he has told us what the end time scenario is going to be. So we have the seven years, three and a half years into it, Antichrist shows up. At the end of that is Armageddon. Now, I I can't remember if I said Armageddon was when Jesus comes back at the end of the thousand-year reign. I just want to make sure that I'm clear Armageddon takes place at the end of the seven years of tribulation. The Gog and Magog invasion takes place at the beginning. And we went through the Gog and Magog invasion. Uh, I gave you all that information a few weeks ago on that. But Armageddon is going to be coming up. And then from Armageddon, you have the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign that is talked about in the end of the book of Revelation. And I believe it's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So that is the timeline, and hopefully repeating it every single week, you guys will begin to get this down. And during that tribulation period I went through last week, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. The seals are listed in Revelation chapter 6. It begins there. And then the seventh seal ushers in the first trumpet in chapters 8 and 9. The trumpets are in 8 and 9. And then the last trumpet ushers in the bold judgments in uh, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 18. And it is prophesied to be the worst time that is unequaled uh, upon the earth. In Mark chapter 13 verse 19 it says, Because those days... Will be the, in those days will be the distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But 
for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So it's going to be cataclysmic for the entire world. And I described all the events through the bowls and the trumpets and the seals that were given to us in the book of Revelation last week. And if you missed that, you can go ahead and listen to the message uh, next time. But right now, or next week, or tomorrow, or today, or this afternoon, whenever you want to listen to it. But right now, I want to focus a little bit on Armageddon. Remember, you have the seven years of tribulation, you have the peace treaty, then you have the three and a half years. It seems like it's going to be kind of prosperous. That's when the mark of the beast is instituted, and you have the abomination which makes desolate. And then towards the end is Armageddon. Now, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And we're going to look in a couple of other areas. We're going to look in Joel, and we're going to look in Zechariah. And by the way, today, I would like you to just grab a Bible. If you don't have one, open it up and turn to the index in the front, because we're going to be going through a lot of Scripture today. And you can take notes, and you can write this stuff down. It is true, and it is sure. And and you have to take these pieces of the puzzle and put them together in order to get a clear understanding of what God has intended for the end times. Now, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, in verse 17, begins here and says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he has deluded those who have received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Two of them were thrown alive into the lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and that would be Jesus Christ. And all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. So this is the final battle when Jesus comes back as we get to Zechariah. We'll read through that as well. And Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. He destroys the people in this battle, the people that have rejected Jesus Christ, the people who are godless. They are not God-fearing at all, and they would even turn their armaments against God. But Jesus comes down, he just destroys them utterly. Now, this is also talked about in the book of Joel, the small letter towards the end of the Old Testament, Joel chapter 3, and in verse 1, it says, In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. or the, It's the area of Megiddo there. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. Now, one side comment about this, a parenthetical thought. How many times have we, as the United States, tried to broker a deal where we give the land of Israel away? God hates that, and he's going to judge the people. He wants Israel in his land, and he's going to restore all the land that was promised to Abraham at that time. 
And those uh, who sold the Israelites into slavery, God is going to judge them. And he, at this particular point, I'm going to use a vernacular of our day, Jesus is ticked. He is mad. And he comes back and he rules with an iron scepter. He is not the, the sheep, the meek and mild one who came before, who was not judging, who restored the ear of um, the servant of the high priest. I think his name was Malchus. And, you know, he, he constantly was ministering to those who are here, and he did not uh, in any way pass judgment on them. But at this particular point, he's coming back and setting up a rule and reign, and he's going to chastise those who do evil. Now, turn over to Zechariah chapter 14. This is also concerning this particular time when the Lord comes back. Zechariah chapter 14. And if nothing else, just remember this chapter. This chapter is crucial with the return of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, A day of the Lord is coming. When your plunder will be divided among you, I will gather all nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south you will flee by my mountain valley for it will extend to azel you will flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the day of uzziah the king of judah then the lord my god will come in all the holy ones with him on that day there will be no light no cold no frost it will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime a day known to the lord when evening comes there will be light on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, excuse me, the, yeah, the Dead Sea, and half to the western sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from Giba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will be like that of Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised and remain in its place from the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine press. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another and they will attack each other. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and the donkeys and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors of all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, 
they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plagues he has inflicted on the nations and do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment for Egypt and the punishment for all nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them, and on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. So this is where God sets up his reign. This is when he comes back. And it's going to be a marvelous sight to see. Of course, we're going to see it because we're coming back with him. You remember the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 51. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20. Uh, that talks about going to your chambers for a little while until my wrath has passed by. And also John chapter 14, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. You know the way to the place that I am going. So we are going to be raptured from here on earth, go to be with the Lord in heaven during that period of the Gog, Magog, rapture, the abomination which makes desolate all through the tribulation period and the great tribulation. We're going to be up there. But then it says we come back and we are with him. We are the armies of the Lord. Now the differences between Armageddon and the Gog, Magog invasion, I want to give you a couple of those. In the Gog, Magog invasion that happens at the beginning of the tribulation period, you have a great power to the north. Do you guys remember the name of that great power to the north? It's Gog and Magog up there. And they gather together Persia, which is Iran, Cush and Put, which we know to be uh, Ethiopia and Libya down there. And there's some of the old satellite uh, countries of the Soviet Union. They're all coming down as well from the north, from Lebanon and Syria and that direction. And so it's mostly Russia, the Middle East, and North Africa in Ezekiel chapter 38 that are involved in this particular battle. In Armageddon, it's the armies from all nations of the world in Joel chapter 3 verse 2 and Zechariah chapter 14 verse 2. So there's a difference there. The whole world is not involved. As a matter of fact, we know that the Gog-Magog invasion, the merchants of Tarshish, Tarshish and Sheba and Dedan complain like, what are you guys doing here? That's not going to be the case at the Battle of Armageddon because there's going to be no Christians left whatsoever. The people who are still around, most of them are going to have the mark of the beast. The Christians who become Christians at that time, who become believers, they're going to be mostly martyred, but there is going to be a remnant which is going to survive and they are going to repopulate the earth. So the second point the differences between Gog and Magog, or Gog-Magog invasion and Armageddon, the attack will come from the north in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 15. But all nations will come from all directions in the battle of Armageddon. So there is also a distinction there. The third thing, the purpose for the Gog-Magog invasion is to take a spoil, to take a prey. I just read an article not too long ago about the discovery of huge amounts of oil in the Golan Heights up there. And they, they've said they've been looking, you know, for years and there's people who have been digging over there, drilling to try to find oil. And one tour guide, and he's also, uh, that we had before, he is also on YouTube. If you look him up, his name is Amir and he gives 
like weekly updates about what's going on in Israel. When I went over there, he happened to be our tour guide one time, and he was kind of joking a little bit, but not so much a little bit. He goes, yes, it's very true. We found oil. And he goes, it's the deepest part in all the surrounding Middle East country. All their oil goes to our land. And so they just suck it out. And it takes all the oil. From it. I don't know if he's telling the truth or he's joking, but he used to be in the military and he's a fantastic guy. And he gives plenty of insight into Israel and what's taking place in the Middle East. So I would say, if you have a chance, look up a mirror and see what he has to say about the updates over in Israel. So they came down and, or they come down in Gog and Magog invasion to take a spoil in Armageddon. Their intent is to destroy Israel. It is not to take a spoil. It's to wipe them out. For their whole history, there has been an attempt to wipe out the nation of Israel. And this is going to be their second to final attempt. Because the final attempt is going to be at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, where Satan's released for a little while, and he gathers the nations together, and they're going to try to take out Jesus and Israel and all that. And it's, it's futile what they're going to try to do. But anyhow, the difference is here. The one for Magog and Gog invasion is to take a spoil, to take a prey, and the one for the Armageddon is to completely destroy the nation of Israel. And then this last one here, a leader in Russia will attack, will come down with Persia and the other countries that I've mentioned previously, and and that would be somebody like Putin. Putin would come down and he would... Uh, and by the way, there's a precedent for him just going into other countries like Crimea. He annexed that a few years ago, just took it away from Ukraine. Ukraine has been in the news lately. And the reason they did that is because we promised if they got rid of their armaments, we'd protect them. And we didn't do that. And then Russia came in and we didn't say anything. And that was the last administration that did that. And now they have anti-take missiles and they're protecting themselves. So there is precedent for Russia just coming in and taking over countries. And they want to do that with Israel. Now that's with the Gog and Magog invasion. They're going to be led by this particular leader in the Armageddon battle. It's led by the Antichrist. We know who leads that one. So these are just a few differences between the Gog, Magog invasion and Armageddon. If you look it up on the internet, some people say, no, Armageddon is first. Or Armageddon and Gog and Magog are the same thing. Or Gog and Magog and Armageddon are at the end of the tribulation. And if you just read the text in order, it's pretty clear. There's a battle at the beginning, Ezekiel 38, and there's a battle at the end in uh, Revelation chapter 19. So that is Armageddon as opposed to Gog and Magog. When Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, that institutes the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. Now, this is the good news. So far, we've had nothing but bad news. We've had, well, bad news depending on what your perspective is. If Jesus comes back and he just has all this destruction taking place, it's his judgment. And when his judgment takes place... We're going to say, true and just are your judgments, O Lord, and we're going to give him praise and honor for it because he's attacking the evil which is in the world and the evildoers, and he judges them. And so we'll rejoice over that, but for the evildoers, this is not going to be good, neither this time nor the great white throne judgment which is to come. And so we have the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, and this is where 
Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, and I just read it to you in Zechariah chapter 14, where his foot lands on the Mount of Olives. Now, this particular time, when he does this, he sets up his rule and reign in Jerusalem. Now, there's several things you may not have known about this millennial reign of Christ, and I I want to point them out to you. First of all, turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Now, we're dealing with what is known as the first resurrection. Some people are going to be resurrected here. We've already been resurrected in the rapture. And Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. Then there was us. But let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 4. It says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus And because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Now, this is the buying and selling. Remember, you can't buy or sell in that economy unless you have the mark of the beast. If you receive the mark of the beast, it's game over. There is no salvation left, not for you, but for those who are left behind. Because all of you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So you don't have to worry about this. But those who are left behind, if they take that mark, that's it. Now going on, they came to life. Referring, oh, excuse me, I'm going to back up just a little bit. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years Let me stop here a second. For centuries, the church believed we were in the millennium. We're actually living through it. And when you see, as we'll go through today, what's in the millennium, there is no possible way we could be living in the millennium. But there are still those today who will say, no, we're living in the millennium. Fellow believers that will say that. And when you sit down and you try to explain some of these things, you know what those Christians do? You start talking to them, they go, blah, 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 blah. They don't don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to it. Uh, Did I tell you about the guy that I met that worships on Saturday, cannot eat lobster, uh, shellfish, I, I, he follows like the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And I'm going, dude, what, what are you doing? And I, I have to go back and I have to talk to him some more. I'm going to see him on a semi-regular basis. But it, when I started talking to him, all he wanted to do was argue. I'm going, and I would give him the scripture. This is what the scripture says. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And Hebrews chapter 4. And he's going, no, dude, did God say it or not? Is it the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20. And I go, Oh, man, understanding. We need the understanding, not just the verses. We have to know how to interpret what is there as well. And so in this particular passage that I just read in in this verse 4, this is given to us, and I've explained this before, but I just want to do it again. It's given to us in a narrative fashion, the way that you would write a letter where you're not using poetry, you're not using similitudes, you're not using metaphor, you're just saying, Christ is going to reign for a thousand years. And some of you or someone else might come along and say, well, what did you really mean by that? 
I meant Christ is going to rule for a thousand years. Well, but, you know, it may not be quite like that. It could be a longer period of time because thousand years, you know, they don't always use exact numbers in the sky. People do that. And so he's going to reign for a thousand years. That's what it says. It's in a narrative form. So I digress. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, the rest of the dead are all the dead wicked. Because we know that everyone in the church has been resurrected. They went in the rapture. They were taken. Those who have died in Christ, they were taken. Those who remained were taken. Those who were uh, killed during the tribulation period, they are resurrected there. And there is still some more. The Israelites, the righteous Israelite dead, will be resurrected during this time. Now, I, I changed my view on this. I was, for years, I held to this particular view of the Israelites will not be resurrected until the great white throne judgment. <clears throat> because the verses that people would give when I'd study it, they, they just didn't satisfy. I go, no, that's not what it's saying. And so then I, I did it again. I did this other search and I go, oh, you know, there it is right there. The Israelites, the righteous dead will be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. This is in Ezekiel chapter 37. And really you need to turn over there and I'm going to, sh- and you're going to find out something about this that you probably didn't know. I didn't know this and I, it, I realized it. I go, oh, there it is right there. But anyhow, Israel is included in this first resurrection that is going to take place. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. You know that song. Them bones, them bones, them crazy bones. That's what this comes from. That song comes from this right here. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Well, there's more. If we keep reading, verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on an Ephraim stick belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. Now, if you don't know the history of Israel, this is kind of like, why I don't understand what's going on. If you remember, you who was the first king of Israel? Saul, that's right. Who was the second king of Israel? David, that's right. Who was the third king of Israel? Saul. You guys are such Bible scholars. Then Solomon had a son. What was his name? Rehoboam. But there was this other guy who was down in Egypt, and his name was... Jeroboam, you guys are so smart, this is good. And so Rehoboam, he's king. Solomon dies, and he's being appointed as king, and he goes to Solomon's advisors, 
And he goes, what should I do for the people? And Rehoboam listens to what they have to say. And they say, you know, your father raised taxes. He was the IRS on steroids. If you relieve the people a little bit in their taxation, they will follow you. He goes, hmm, that's good. And so he went to his buddies, the ones who were the same age. And he said, so what do you say? He goes, oh, you think my father Solomon was rough. Hey, I'm going to just oppress you guys and tax you even more. And so he followed the counsel of his buddies. And this was prophesied to happen. When he followed the counsel of his friends, the kingdom was split. Ten tribes went to the north with Jeroboam, and two tribes remained in the south. And because of that, the northern kingdom, there was not a good king ever in the northern kingdom. There were a couple you could call good in the southern kingdom after that, and you have the history of the kings and in Chronicles, and you have them listed there. But certainly in the north, they were terrible kings involved in idolatry. If you take a trip to Israel, they'll take you up to the city of Dan. And they have, the, they think, the very spot where the first idolatry took place. They have this mock altar that's uh, set up there. It's made out of aluminum. Back then, it would have been made out of stone. And so there were two divided kingdoms is what was going on. And what he's saying here is take two sticks, put them together. This kingdom is going to be one again in the future. And so verse 18, it goes on to explain this. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood. So it was Judah to the south, it was Israel to the north. And they will become one in my hand, Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of the their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. So he's going to make one nation. The Israelites, the righteous Israelites, will be raised from the dead at that point. My question would be, do they get the resurrected body, or are they just resuscitated? Are they just brought back in their normal body? I don't know. I would think it would be the uh, resurrected body that they will have. And then there's more. Uh, This part, I was like, wow, I, I didn't see that before. Verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. Now, some people immediately say, it depends on which study you go to. Some will say, well, that's Jesus. Because, you know, he's like David. He's the king, and now... He's the second king, but he, he says this twice. First, he says, my servant, David, and he says, David, my servant. So my servant, David, will be king over them. By the way, is he going to be resurrected then? Yes, he will. He'll be resurrected then as well. And they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant, Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They, they and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish with them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So apparently, if you take this in a literal fashion, David's going to be resurrected. He's going to be their king. And, you know, David didn't live in the temple. Who's in the temple? Jesus Christ. He's in the temple. And then David is the king over the people. And guess what you're going to be? A kingdom of priests and rulers. We are going to rule, and we'll get to that in a minute, but we're going to rule and reign with Christ as well. So he's going to have his appointed leaders over cities, towns, and nations. And David is going to be the monarch over Israel. Jesus is Lord over the whole earth, and not just Israel, but he's going to be there in the midst of his people. Now with this also, there's not going to be any more wars during the millennial reign of Christ. No more battles. And we see how God called the Israelites to take their plowshares and their pruning hooks and turn them into spears. And then he flips that. He changes it to just the opposite. In Joel chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. So it's like, Israel, you're going to be fighting. That's what you're going to do before the millennial reign of Christ. But after the millennial reign of Christ, Micah chapter 4, verse 3 says, He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So at first, it's take your farming implements and make them spears, then take your spears and make them plowshares. So you can, all of us are going to be with countries that we're with or cities that we're with. We're going to be involved as an agrarian community all around the world and not going to war. There is huge money in war right now. And, that, and by the way, to keep that money flowing, what do you have to have? More wars. You know, there are evil people that devise ways to keep battles going, keep wars going now. I'm just wicked individuals. Oh, you know, a few thousand people die, but, you know, we make some money. That's how they look at it. And, but they would never say that right out front, but that's what's in their heart. And the Lord goes, no more of that. That's it. No more war. Also, Longevity is going to be around during the millennium. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 65. In Isaiah 65 and also other parts of Isaiah chapter 11, there's a lot of prophecy in Isaiah. But the people who are alive, and by the way, the people who are alive in the millennium that populate the earth, they still have bodies like ours. We have the new glorified body. We're never going to die again. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. He's going to invite us to sit on his throne with him. What that means is we are going to have his authority. When we go out and we judge and we rule, it's with the authority of Jesus Christ. But here in Isaiah chapter 65, go down to verse 20. It says, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. 
Imagine that. Oh, I, I get in the 60s and I go, oh, 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 you, I'm feeling old, you know, but at 100, you're going to be spry like a 10-year-old, you know, let's go do the jungle gym, you know, at 100 years old, that's what the individual is going to be like. So this tells us he takes the law of entropy, the law of decay, the law that goes from order to disorder, and he's going to stop that and reverse it. We're all going to be pretty much young all the time. And if you die at 100, we're going to say, he was so young. At 100, it's going to be like the Old Testament times when Noah, uh, before the times of Noah, the, the antediluvian society before the flood, they lived for hundreds of years. Methuselah, almost a 1,000 years old. That's a long time, a long time to live. But we're going to live forever. So somebody who's alive in their regular bodies, not in their glorified body, is still going to live for hundreds of years. In verse 21, it's going to be also a time of prosperity for everyone. It says, They will build houses and dwell in them, and they will plant vineyards and eat of their fruit. No longer will they build houses, and others live in them or plant, and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Now going on in verse 25, it tells us wild animals will no longer be a danger. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm going to look at a lion's teeth. Not very adept for eating straw. So we're probably going to look at a lion and he's going to have these pearly white teeth nice and square all around and he's going to eat straw. But we also know that the children, little kids, are going to play with deadly snakes and not be harmed. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. And by the way, everyone is going to know about the Lord. Right now, people, the Lord, who is he? But everyone will know the Lord at this time. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb. By the way, it's not the lion and the lamb. It's the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Come here, kitty, kitty, kitty. You know, this big lion, the tiger comes along. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra, and the young child will put his hand in a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know how a little child, like a two-year-old, he goes, come here, kitty, kitty, and he grabs the cat, and the cat's going, help me, you know, and he grabs it. like They're just going to be grabbing snakes like, <laughs> and the snake's going to be going, what are you doing to me here? Let me alone. And he'll throw the snake, and the wild animals, that's how it's going to be then. And, and we're going to sit down and go, look at that. You remember, it was never like that before. And the people who were born during that time, they're going to, what are you talking about? You know, we're going we're to have, I think, still memories of what took place before then. Once we get to heaven and we have the New Jerusalem, I think all that will dissipate. 
But anyhow, it also says that the saints will rule with Christ. Turn over to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, in verse 22. There's also going to be a reference in the book of Revelation, uh, two references there in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So if you want to put your finger in the book of Revelation, as we're reading Daniel, chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 22. It says, Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Then verse 27 goes with this. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. So it tells us that those who believe, those who are elect, those who are the saints, those who are the church, are going to rule and reign with Christ. Now, Revelation chapter 2, in verse 26 and 27, it says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery in chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down on my father with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's going to be our job. You're going to be governors, mayors, potentates, I wouldn't say a politician, that's probably a dirty word. But you understand what I'm talking about. We're going to be in positions of authority to rule. And you might say, well, but I don't know how to rule. Don't worry about it. God will give you the knowledge. You'll know exactly what to do, and you'll never make a mistake. Well, i, I got to rescind that order. That's wrong. No, the Holy Spirit will be with you, living in you, guiding you, and it will be an incredible existence there. And w- there will be such prosperity going on. It's just going to be phenomenal. And then there's going to be a world war again at the end of this tribulation. By the way, there are more things going on during this millennial reign of Christ. And all the things that I've given you up to this time, do you see them actually happening? What does the world think of Christians? <laughs> We're hardly ruling and reigning. And if somebody who's a Christian gets elected, the talents come out, the sulfurous breath, all of that. You know, the, the demonic wings come out and they're so extremist. And I mean, you just go on and on when it comes to the Christians. So you can see why. We're not in the millennium if you read the scriptures. By the way, where's King David? Where's Israel? Israel's there, but King David's not ruling and reigning over them. Well, let's go on. And by the way, just as another side note, to get to that point where you say the millennium, we're already in it, you have to take the scripture non-literally. Now, if, if you want to do that, there's no rules of interpretation when you interpret scripture in a non-literal fashion. Just like salvation, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does it mean that? Or does it not mean that? Does it mean something else? No, that's exactly what it means. And so we want to make sure we interpret for the most part, or for all parts, where it's a narrative, we just interpret it literally. And if the rules dictate different, then we change it. But, and if it's supposed to be symbolic, then we use symbolic interpretation. Now, going on in... Revelation chapter 20, 
if you want to turn over there, this deals with the end where Satan is released for a little while. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Now, we know there's not four corners on the earth. That's metaphoric language to depict he's going through the whole world and he's going to deceive the nations. Now, how long will it take Satan to deceive the nations? I think it's going to be years, but I don't know how many years. In the realm of 1,000 years, could it be five years, 10 years, even the last 100? I, I don't know. I don't, it's just my opinion. I don't have a, a definite time span, but I think he doesn't need 100 years to do that. He can do that in a lot less of stretch of a time. And so he's going to deceive the nations and Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. There's Russia again, that same area that's up there. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where there is the beast and the false prophet has been thrown. They will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. This does not end. They do not lose consciousness. They are going to be more conscious than they have ever been. And that's the same thing with the people who also are thrown in to the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. And that's in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled away from his presence and there was no place for them. This is, I think it's Second Peter it talks about the earth being destroyed with a fervent heat in all the universe. It's all going away. Everything that we know to be out there in existence from the earth to the farthest galaxy which is out there. It is all going to be destroyed because the entire universe is subject to the law of decay. And the Lord's going to destroy it and he's going to make everything new. What the newness is going to be like, we, I don't think we can even imagine what he's going to do. But it goes on to say, in verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So you have the book of life, and then you have these other books that maintain the history of what everybody has done in their entire life, whether deed or thought. And all of that is going to be gone through. Now, how long is that going to take? I have no idea. It could happen in an instant. It could happen over a millennia. We, we have no idea how long it's going to take to do that. But they're going to be judged. Everything we have ever done or said is written down somewhere. If we don't know Jesus Christ, it hasn't been erased. Our sins have been erased. But those who have not accepted Christ... There be angels are up there right now scribbling away. Yeah, they just had this bad thought, and this is what the thought was. And they had this bad deed. So it's all being written down, and those books are all going to be open. How many books are there? <laughs> I, I don't know. Is it like one of those Christmas stories where you open the book and the, the lettering appears? I have no idea. But probably 
tons of books. I'm just going to use that technical phrase. Tons of books are going to be up there as well as the book of life. And that's the one I think they'll probably go to at the end. Okay, they did all these things. Is their name in the book of life? Uh, No, that's it. And they're done and they're cast into the lake of fire. So going on with this, it says in verse, let me go back to verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. So when people die today that don't have Christ as their Lord and Savior, they go to Hades. That's a place of torment. That's where they exist right now those who have accepted christ they are immediately in the presence of the lord verse 14 then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire and the lake of fire is the second death if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire so that is the ultimate residing place which is called hell anybody again who is not a believer in christ who has not asked for forgiveness of their sins that's where they're thrown according to matthew 25:46 and daniel 12:2 It also lasts forever. The people do not go to sleep and they are not annihilated. And nobody goes to hell that doesn't choose to go there. They choose to go there by rejecting Christ. They say, no, I want nothing to do with Christ. Well, this is what's left. And if they'd like a third place to go, there is no third place. There is no, well, I'm, I'm, I want to cease to exist. No, you're created in the image of God. One thing about being created in the image of God is you last forever. You don't cease to exist. And that's all wrapped up in who we are. And if we wanted to not be created in the image of God, well, God didn't do that. He created us in his image so that we would have fellowship with him. But those who reject it, well... They're going to be in darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so for us, that's the good news. We have been redeemed from that. And God told us what's going to happen on his kingdom on earth. And also we're going to get into next week, the kingdom of heaven. When all of this is done, the new heaven and the new earth. And then we'll hop back into Matthew 24. Because now you have the complete context from AD 70 all the way to the new heaven and new earth. And when we read Matthew chapter 24, you're going, oh yeah, that's right in the, right there in the book of Revelation. We understand what that is. And so to go through Matthew 24 and 25 and not have a context, it's like, well, I'm not quite sure what this says. My prayer for you is that you get to rejoice today and Thanksgiving's coming up. You give God thanks that he has called you into everlasting fellowship with him and with the saints and we get to live forever and we're going to be here in the millennial kingdom. That's the good news. We get saved from the judgment and the death that awaits the rest of the world for all time that people have existed. And, and that is a blessing to us. May God fill you with his joy and may you experience the newness of life even now as you walk in that newness of life with him. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that you have instructed us, you have shown us what your your will is for the future and how this millennial reign will be glorious. And Father, I would say we can't wait, but give us patience as we do wait. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would ask you for forgiveness, that they would proclaim you as Lord, and in doing so, believing by faith 
they will receive the gift of salvation. And for those who reject, Lord, I pray that you would reduce their influence over those who they would try to train to be atheists and agnostics. We thank you for your word, Lord, but use it in us for your will. In Jesus' name, amen.